listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Today is the last Sunday of the month. We have family worship. And so what I'd like to do uh, before we jump into the passage that we have this morning from Luke chapter 7, which my six-year-old who was sitting beside me as soon as Jeff got through reading it, he said, that was a long passage. I said, I know, buddy, 50 verses. But before we do, if you're a kid, come on down, and I'm going to read a story to you from this book right here called the Jesus Storybook Bible. So if you're a kid, come on down. I'm going to read this to you. And just so you know, we are in Luke chapter 7, but uh, this story, it, this book didn't have a particular story for today's passage, but the one that we're going to read kind of leads up and then hopefully it'll serve as a refresher to us for what we've looked at the past several weeks in the book of Luke. And so we're walking through the book of Luke, and so this is kind of a little bit of a summary. We're going to finish with Jesus calling his disciples, which is what we looked at last week, and then we'll jump into Luke 7. What's up, y'all? Y'all doing all right? All right, cool. Just making sure. Okay, this is called Let's Go. After Jesus was baptized, he went straight out into the desert. That might seem like an odd place to go because, as you know, deserts are very hot and there isn't any food or water or places to stay. But Jesus needed to get away by himself and be somewhere quiet and lonely. He needed to be with his heavenly father to get ready for his new life. In the desert, Jesus thought about the secret rescue plan he had made with God. Before the foundation of the world, they both knew what would have to happen. To rescue God's children, Jesus would have to die. die. That's right. There was no other way. It was the reason he had come. Now, that old enemy, the one who had spoken through the snake to Adam and Eve back in the garden... Remember him? Yeah. Yeah. He didn't want Jesus to rescue God's people. He was a bad guy, wasn't he? So he lied to Jesus. Are you really God's own son? He whispered. Poor you. God must not love you. He doesn't need you to die. Do it my way. Yes and no. Jesus said to the liar, I will do what God says. And from that moment on, Nothing would ever be the same. Jesus wasn't like Adam. Jesus was a new kind of man. He would not believe the terrible lie that the enemy spoke. Jesus knew God loved him. And he would trust God no matter what. It was just as God had promised to Adam and Eve all those years before. Jesus had come to do battle against the snake's work. He would get rid of sin and the darkness and the tears. He would suffer but he would win. Jesus left the desert and set out about the great rescue. He was going to get God's people back. But first, he needed to find some helpers and friends. He had a lot to do. He would need some people to help him. Who would make good helpers, do you think? Clever ones? Yeah. Rich ones? Yeah. Strong, important ones? Yeah. Well, some people might think so, but I'm sure by now you don't need me to tell you that they'd be wrong. 
Because the people God uses don't have to know a lot of things or have a lot of things. They just need to need him a lot. One day, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee. Yeah. When he saw some brothers and friends mending their nets, they were poor, poor fishermen. Jesus called out to them, let's go. So Peter, James, Andrew, and John looked up at this man on the shore, and they couldn't explain it. Their boats needed to be put away. Their nets needed mending. Fish were still wriggling on the shore. But something about this stranger made them just drop their nets and their fish, leave their boats and everything, and follow him. This God-man was like no one they had ever met. When they looked at Jesus, their hearts filled up with a wonderful, forever sort of happiness. And inside, it was as if they were running free in an open field. Jesus asked 12 men to be his helpers. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, Matthew, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, another James, Simon, Thaddeus, and Judas. Meeting Jesus would change all of them forever. Twelve of them. The end. All right, good job, y'all. Let's give them a hand. Great work, kiddos. So today is Halloween, as you're probably well aware, the number two most grossing holiday um, in America. But it's also important for other reasons besides the things that our culture celebrates. Because it was on this day, 504 years ago, when a guy named Martin Luther took 95 theses and nailed them to the door there in Wittenberg on the church door. Y'all heard about that? Y'all familiar? That's when the Protestant Reformation began. I'm not going to go into it. I don't have time or honestly the mental capacity to tell you all the details of that. Uh, But I would encourage you to teach your children, to train them up. Here is part of the history, not just dressing up as ghosts and goblins or, or scarecrows or princesses, but this is also an important day because of the history of the church. Side note on that, I do have the mental capacity to tell you this, but when we think about the Protestant Reformation, oftentimes we think, oh, they wanted to destroy the church, but that wasn't it. Martin Luther, like the other reformers, which actually started a little bit before him, that was the official start of it though, they did not want to destroy the church and begin a new one which is oftentimes what people think. Hey, let's, let's go in a new direction. They actually wanted to reform the church. So the purpose of the Reformation was for Martin Luther and others, Luther, Zwingli, um, Huss, they, they, wanted, he, they wanted the church to be re-centered and reformed on the word of God because it had gotten so far away. So as we're reading through this passage, let's be reminded of that. But also the word Halloween comes from what means All Hallows Eve, And so November 1st, historically, again, looking historically, November 1st, which is tomorrow, is important because that's the day that the church traditionally, for hundreds of years, has celebrated those who have gone before us and martyred their lives. And so it's been said uh, by those who, I think it was Tertullian said, I'm not sure, he said that that the church is built on the blood of martyrs. And so as those people have gone before us, we should be reminded We don't just show up here on Sunday mornings like, oh, man, this is awesome. Let's learn something new and then go along our way. We have a rich history of people who have gone before so that we can have the scriptures right here in tangible form. And so as we look back, let's be encouraged. 
And let's be reminded of their efforts. But also this morning, as we look specifically at this passage, let's be reminded that we are right here also looking forward to the generation that's right here around us and among us and our kids, but also the generation that's going to come after them and the generation that's going to come after them. And if the Lord tarries, a few more generations beyond that. And so we don't have to look back and say, man, I'm not going to tell you, hey, be like Luther, be like Zwingli, be like, I'm not saying be like these men, but I'm saying, as we're going to see this morning, there is a purpose that God has for our lives. And let us not be distracted by the things of this world that we forget the ultimate reason that we are here this morning. And that's to celebrate what God has done in his word, to celebrate what God has done in his people, and to be encouraged and to take that good news, as Jeff just prayed, to the ends of the earth, but that includes our neighborhood right here. I'd also like to celebrate for a minute. Last night we had a trunk or treat, and we had dozens of families come through. And so for everybody who was here last night, that was fantastic. If you brought candy, if you prayed for the event, for those who give faithfully, it went to help support this event. And so our goal as a church is not just to gather on Sundays and say, okay, this is church, this event, this building, but we are a people who are the church of God. And we want to see those around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. Luke chapter seven, let's jump in. We have a partners meeting this afternoon down in Locust Grove. And so I'm going to fly through, the, through chapter 7 of Luke. Um, and so if, if you want some more details, some more commentary, some more, hey, like I, was, I had a few questions, that's great. We have life groups. Uh, I'll talk to you. As soon as we get done, we're going to head to Locust Grove. But let me know if you need some more on that. We have a book in the, in the bookstore by Mike McKinley on Luke uh, chapters 1 through 12, I believe. So there, there are plenty of resources. I'm not going to get incredibly into the weeds and talk about the Greek translation of this or what does this mean. Just so you know, I'm trying to give us a, an overview, look at the big picture of Luke chapter 7. But I also want us to be reminded that this is for us. So Luke chapter 7, we just read it. Here's what I want us to see in verses 1 through 10. First of all, we, we see this centurion and we see his unlikely faith. We see the unlikely faith of this centurion. Here's who this man was. He was an important man. Look at verse number two with me. A centurion, by the way, uh, was in charge. That word centurion, we get the word century from that. That word uh, 100, that number 100. So this man was most likely in charge of about 100 of the military men. So he was important. But if you look at verse number two, it said uh, he is a servant who is sick to the point of death. And he was highly valued by him. That means, and if you look there at the Greek, this centurion loved this man. It wasn't highly valued, like, hey, I need this guy to get back to work for me. What that means is this centurion had compassion on this man. He loved this man, so he was important, but he was also compassionate. We know that the centurion was wealthy, but he was also generous because the Jews come to him and like, hey, look at this great temple that this centurion built for us. This man may not, be a, may not have the kind of faith that is a saving faith, but he is still a generous man. He understands the things of scripture and he values these things. So he's powerful, he's compassionate, he's wealthy, he's generous, and he's humble. Look at verse number three, and he, comes, he sends his servants to Jesus. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him, elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. So we see here, this man is compassionate. He's desperate. As we've looked at the book of Luke so far, what we've seen is Jesus smiles and has compassion on those who understand their need. So the centurion comes to Jesus humbly and says, man, I am suffering. I have great need. And there are some here this morning 
here in McDonough, some 2,000 years later, who are like, man, I can identify with this centurion. I have great need. In my family, my wife's grandmother is on the brink of death. She's waking up every few hours, and she just says, heaven, heaven, and then falls back asleep. She's right there. And that's a difficult time for our family. Some of y'all have struggled with those who have suffered from COVID the past few months. We have marriages in this room, and those who maybe should be in this room this morning, whose marriages are on the rocks. Some of y'all are struggling financially. You look around, you're like, how could anybody be struggling financially? Everything's great. But your family is struggling financially. Some of y'all are struggling with sin. Some of us are struggling just being in the bottom of the depth of despair, and you don't even know why. So we can identify with this man this morning. All of us have some sort of desperation, some sort of need. And what does this man do? He goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, heal this servant. I know that you're powerful. Things are not as they should be. So when we look around the world and we're like, man, things are messed up. This is all of these issues that I just mentioned. The issue that this centurion is dealing with is because of sin. The world is not the way it is supposed to be. Sometimes we look around and we're just like, ah, man, this is just just our cross to bear. And we never really consider, man, is this an ideal version of what God created? But can I tell you this morning that it's not. The poverty, the suffering, the pain, the anguish, the anguish, the, the depression that we struggle with, that is not the way that we were designed. We were supposed to be in perfect relationship with God, but sin has destroyed this. The centurion understands that, and he goes to Jesus, and he says, this is about your kingdom. Your kingdom is about healing. Your kingdom brings life. Your kingdom does not come into death and say, man, oh well. The kingdom of Jesus steps into the realm of death and brings life. So the centurion says, I need healing for this servant. He's begging the kingdom of Jesus to be made known even here. There's hope for us in that. Wherever you are, you're like, man, I'm I'm dealing with this. And maybe most of life is good. Maybe most of life is is, is hunky-dory. But you're just like, yeah, there's this peace. There's there's this piece of life that I'm dealing with. Can I tell you that when Christ returns, he is going to make all things new. But can I also tell you this this morning? You're like, ah, that's, that's good future hope. Can I also tell you this? That Jesus Christ is in the process, even today, of making all things new. We are his people. We are part of his kingdom. And there is hope for us, not just in the future, but there is hope for us today. So may we be taking those things before the Lord and like this centurion man, be praying for healing of those things. Look down at verse number nine. So Jesus, he says, go. And with a word, Jesus heals this man. Verse number nine. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Verse number 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, They found the servant well. So even at the word of Jesus, is this servant made well? Even at the word of Christ. What's interesting though, you would hope, and the goal of the Old Testament is to point people to a relationship with God, to point them to the true Messiah. But where does Jesus have to go to find faith? He doesn't look at the people of God, those who know the most stuff, those who should have everything together, those who have the answers right there in the written scriptures. He has to go outside of the people of God. He has to find a pagan. He has to find an outsider. And it's there that we see the most faith, that Jesus marveled 
at this unlikely faith. Friends, may we not be like those who have the answers to life right here, yet we still don't have faith because we're distracted by things of the world. So we see unlikely faith. In verse 11, we pick up, and I want us to see here in these next seven verses, unimaginable power. So soon afterward, verse 11, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd with him. He went to the gate, and there's a widow there walking by. We see this funeral procession. And here's what we know about this widow, is that she's in the middle of fresh grief. Because when someone died in that day, they wanted to bury them within 24 hours. They, they didn't want that body to begin stinking. They wanted to get that body in the ground as quickly as possible. So here's the picture. Jesus walks up. We have this woman who has already lost her husband. We know that she's a widow. She's already buried her husband, which is terrible in and of itself. Now she's buried. She's about to bury her son, which is doubling down on her grief. This woman, as a widow, she doesn't have very many options. She doesn't have social security to, to lean on. She doesn't have a retirement plan. She doesn't have insurance, life insurance, and she's not now set for life like my wife would be. Uh, but, and don't remind her of that too often. But she's not set for life. At this point, this woman has a few options. She's going to either become a beggar. She's going to have to put up her body for sale. She's going to have to become a slave. Those are her options. And so not just losing the minute of her life has brought her grief, but understanding the desperate situation that she's in. But notice what Jesus says in verse number 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Is this what you say to someone who's in the middle of grief? Notice the words of Jesus. Because these words, woman, stop crying. I preached a few funerals, and at no point have I, have, has the family been brought in. And I've gotten up and said, y'all stop crying. Daggummit. Just, just, you know, put aside. The, no, you don't do that. This is otherwise insensitive. The only way that these two things can, can match, the compassion of Jesus and woman, do not weep, is if Jesus can change the situation. Because he says, do not weep. The woman's thinking, uh, I've, got a, I've got a dead son right here. What do you mean do not weep? But notice what Jesus does. Verse 14, unasked, then he came up and touched the bier, and the, and the bearer stood still. Now the woman doesn't say, Oh, you said do not weep. Okay, can you please make the situation better? Jesus intervenes out of his own grace and mercy. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Here's my thought for us this morning. It's not like this woman said, Jesus, can you please heal this like the centurion man? And I wonder if every benefit that we receive in Jesus was simply based on our prayer and on our humility, on our petition to God, what our lives would look like then. Because how often do we look around and we're like, Jesus, let me pray for this. Let me pray for my children. Let me spend time praying for my finances. Let me spend time praying for my neighbors. Let me spend time praying for the lost in my life. Let me spend time praying for the unity of the body. Let me spend time praying for our pastors and for our leaders. Let me spend time praying for my marriage. Let me spend time praying for my coworkers. Let me spend time seeking your will for my life. How much time do we spend doing that? Probably not enough. But what does Jesus do? The point is not, hey, woman, you didn't ask me. The point is, in the middle of that, 
Jesus still intervenes because he is gracious and he is merciful and he understands our hearts. And the same is true for us. May we be reminded of the grace and mercy of God. Even when we are not seeking him, he is still seeking us. Jesus commands the dead to come back to life. And then verse number 16, look what happens. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Jesus commands the dead to come back to life. I'm reminded of Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 3, where God says, let there be light. And what happens? Boom. There is light. At the word of Jesus, things happen. That is power. That is unimaginable power. Like in verses 1 through 10, we saw where the crowd recognizes his power. And what do they say? God has visited his people. Then we pick up in verse number 18. So we have unlikely faith of the centurion. We have this unimaginable power of Jesus stepping in to the story of this widow. But then we have unexpected doubt. So in verse number 18, we have John the Baptist who is in prison. He sends some of his disciples now, John has a great resume. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is about to say, man, he's, he's fantastic. It doesn't get a whole lot better than John. We have this guy who, was, who had this bushy hair, and he ate locusts, and he dipped them in honey, and he runs around the countryside saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And people are coming and being saved. Those who are rich, those who are poor, everybody in between in the nation hears about John the Baptist, and they're coming, they're baptized. John the Baptist is the one we get his name because he baptized Jesus. It doesn't get a whole lot better than that. But what I want us to see is that faith and doubt can take up space in the same heart. So even here, as John sends word to Jesus, it's because he's doubting. Are you the one? Are you the one that we've been looking for? Before we say, man, John, you baptized Jesus. He's your cousin. Your dad, Zechariah, had this, had this prophecy from this angel. Come on, John. That's what we would do. That's what we do. Notice what Jesus does. Is he the one to come or shall we look for another in verse 20? Verse 21, notice what Jesus does. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Jesus responds. He doesn't, he doesn't blast John's faith or lack of faith, his doubt. He doesn't blast it. He doesn't rebuke John for not having enough faith. Notice what he does. He responds to John's doubt with evidence that he is the Messiah and that he is the one who is powerful. Verse 22, and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Notice when John came to preach, he's preaching judgment. He says, when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring judgment. You need to stop sinning now. And so, and that's true. We talked about that a few chapters ago, chapter three of Luke. So when John is preaching, he's saying, the Messiah is coming, repent of your sin. But when Jesus shows up, he's saying, yeah, that's true. But also understand, I'm not coming to judge right now. Right now, I'm bringing this age of restoration. I'm bringing healing. I'm bringing mercy. I'm bringing long suffering. I'm bringing grace. 
So when Christ came the first time, he didn't come with a sword coming out of his mouth. He didn't come riding a great white horse. He didn't come to judge the living and the dead. That's revelation. That's what's happening. When Jesus came the first time, he came as a suffering servant, the one who was going to be put upon the cross so that we could experience grace and forgiveness through his broken body and his shed blood. And so Jesus says, yes, what John said is true, but it's not happening right now because right now I'm, I'm restoring the world. I'm bringing this age of restoration. And I would ask you, friend, do, do you struggle with doubt? Because often, especially in our church culture, I mean, South Point, other churches like us, this, you know, re reformed type culture, what happens is if somebody is doubting, it's like, ooh, 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 ooh. Don't, don't struggle with doubt because we know all the facts. We've got everything right. But notice who Jesus is addressing here. He's addressed those who know all the facts. Notice how Jesus addresses John and his disciples. He doesn't say, man, go, just go read the Bible. Just go do more better stuff faster. He says, let me show you. Let me show you. And in the same way, our doubts should be brought to Jesus, should be brought to the scriptures. And eventually our doubts, just like John's, are answered in the resurrection from the dead of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Jesus ultimately proves his messiahship, his saviorship by rising from the dead. That's where our doubt finds its defeat. It's not only just on the cross, but in the risen Lord. As we pick up, we see that in verse 24, this unbelievable greatness. This unbelievable greatness. So when John's messengers had gone, Jesus begins to speak to the crowds concerning John. Now this is where Jesus gives pro mad props to John. He says, here's what John did. Why did you go out into the wilderness to see? Uh, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Is he, he's saying, did you, did you just go out and did you think John was going to be some, some weak reed shaken by the wind? Is that what you're accusing John of? Verse 25, what then did you go out and see? A man dressed in soft clothing? We know that John didn't wear that. He wore camel skin. It was, it was itchy. I, I want all of my shirts to be like 50% polyester and then 25% rayon, 25% cotton. I want the absolute soft. You're like, bro, that's a little extreme. I know that. But that's because I want the softest shirt possible. I don't want to wear camel hair. So he's saying, look, don't look at John and be like, hey, man, he was, he was a little soft. No, this man was hardcore. What did you go out and see? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Again, he's still talking about John. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Now, notice what he says in verse number 28. What we're going to see is that money, power, position, possessions, they do not matter in the kingdom of God. So here he's celebrating what John did and who he was. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yeah, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. We've seen in other places, understand here, we have those who are great in this world and men like John, men and women who are willing to sacrifice for the sake of this coming king. He says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. But notice what else he says. He says, no one is greater than John except those who are greater than John. Wait, what did you just say, Jesus? Hold on. Verse 28, the second half again. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Talking about John the Baptist. I was reading this week about Susan B. Anthony. And 
for most of Susan B. Anthony's life, she fought for the right of all women to have the chance to vote here in America. Does anybody know when that bill got passed? What year? Not that long ago. Just over 100 years ago. In 1920, that bill got passed. In the 19th Amendment. For all women to be able to vote. But Susan B. Anthony died in 1906. 14 years before. So this is similar. So he says, all of you who are in the kingdom have the rights had this inheritance of being in Christ in the same way that Susan B. Anthony worked her entire life and never actually saw her work come to fruition. But now we get to experience that, especially you as women. And I'm really thankful for that. We all have the right, if you're 18 and older, we all have the right and the opportunity to vote because of Susan B. Anthony. But she was simply a forerunner for that. She worked her entire life. But those of you who get to vote today, those of you ladies who get to vote today, it's because of the work of this lady and she never saw it. So in some way, y'all are greater even than Susan B. Anthony. Jesus is saying that about John. He's saying John is pointing this coming Messiah. I think John's in the kingdom for sure. But he's saying, those of you who are in the kingdom of God, even now, you have greater rights and inheritance than even John the Baptist did while he is preaching because y'all get to see and to experience and savor Jesus Christ himself. So he says, no one's greater than John except those who are greater than John. But look at verse number 30. This is probably the most, one of the most devastating statements in the whole book of Luke. We'll go back to verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. But notice right there in verse number 30. Notice that right there. The Pharisees, those who know the, knew the most, about who God was, what his word said, about the law, about what right and wrong, evil and good was, they rejected the purpose of God for their lives. For me, as I look at all of the things that distract us in our culture, may this not be true of us. We have so many things that are right in front of our face. Even this morning, I, I sat back in my office for a few minutes at about 10:15, and I just prayed that I would not be distracted. There are so many things today between getting up here and, and doing a confession and preaching a sermon and then leaving and going to partners meeting. And I might have tickets to a game tonight in Atlanta somewhere, but I'm distracted by all those things. What time do I leave? How much this? All of these different things. And then I open up the scriptures to Hebrews chapter one. It says, do not harden your hearts. Do not be distracted by those things that are around us. May we not be distracted by all these. That's just today. Tomorrow's got problems of its own. But may we not miss the purpose that God has for our lives, being distracted by sin, by self-righteousness, by selfishness. May the statement not be about us. We know the right things, yet we do not act on them. Verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? So he says, this generation is hostile to truth. In the same way they, they know it, Romans 1, we, we know what's right or wrong, like we, but we suppress those things because of sin. But here's how this generation, and, and Jesus is speaking to the generation then, but I think it's true for us now. 
Over 30% of Americans, of, of Gen Zers, were identify as nuns, N-O-N-E-S. They say, we don't know what can be true. What can, I'm not going to affiliate with any sort of religious, Christian, anything else, denomination at all. I'm just going to kind of go on my way. We can't really know. 98% of those are agnostics. They would say, we just can't know. So I would look around at our generation and say, we are, we are just as hostile to the truth but Jesus explains it here. Here's how you can know if you're hostile to the truth or not. Verse 32, the generation, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We play the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge for you and you did not weep. In other words, these children's games, they, don't want, they want to play this and then they want to play this. And we know they like this game, but they don't want to play it. Then they're like, nothing can make them happy. That's what Jesus is saying with this. He's saying you, you put things in front of kids, it's like, ah, I don't want to do that. Okay, you want to do this? Ah, I don't want to do that either. Ah, you want to do I can't, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. What do you want to do? I don't know, but something else. He's saying it's just like this generation. They're just hostile to the truth. Nothing can make them happy. Verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. So because John the Baptist came and says, I'm not going to eat these things or drink these things. I want to remain pure in this way because of this Old Testament command. I'm going to do this. And they're like, man, that's really weird. You've got a demon. But then notice, verse 34, the son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. So you want John the Baptist to eat and drink, and he doesn't. You look at Jesus, and you're like, I don't know why you're eating and drinking. He, he just wants to party, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they're like, he's saying, you can't be happy. You don't even know what you want because you've suppressed the truth so far down. But look at verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, this was a, a common proverb, and the, the crowd would understand this. We, for, for us, we're like, okay, we, we understand wisdom. We understand children. How are these things? How do we apply that to our families? That's not the, the point of this, this proverb that Jesus puts right here in this closing. What this means is that Jesus' followers are going to prove him correct. Your children prove a lot about you. Some of your kids prove a little too much about you, right? You're like, ah, kid, don't say that. Don't look at that person that way. We got in the car yesterday. I said, hey, when someone speaks to you, make sure you respond loudly enough for them to hear you because I want you to be a good representation of me as your dad. And I'm teaching them, here's how you grow up as a man, right? He says here, yet wisdom, and if you look at Matthew 11 and the same, the same telling of this story, what that wisdom, he says, may this faith result in action. So Jesus is saying, may the faith of my followers result in action and good deeds. He's saying, it doesn't matter just what you know. It matters how you respond to what you know. And we can sit around and we can have these debates and we can talk about this and we can know the right stuff and sit around and bicker and argue. He says, but those who are faithful to me, followers of me, will prove what is true. Then we get last and not just unbelievable greatness, but verse 36, we pick up with, this uninvited guest. So we have the unlikely faith of the centurion, the unimaginable power that we see when Christ raises the son from the dead, the unexpected doubt of John the Baptist, but this unbelievable greatness that we have as being part of the kingdom. But then we have here this uninvited guest. I wanna walk through this quickly. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Now this would be a formal dinner. Here's why we know this. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Now, he had a table set out, and it was most likely a, a chance. This is a picture of the Pharisee here, the actual picture of the Pharisee. Uh, 
we have here a table. He says, now come recline at the table with me. That means it was a formal dinner. That's important. Then we have the picture of this woman. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that she was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. But here's what I want us to see as we walk through these, the beginning of these verses. I want us to draw a, a contrast between the Pharisee, we know his name to be Simon, and this woman. Okay? So Luke lays this out for us right here. Here's why this is important, because there are only two options for our lives. And as we go through this, it's like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm like the woman. There are important implications for that, though. So notice, verse 36, it's formal. Verse 37, we have this woman. The, the Pharisee, what identifies a Pharisee is that they are moral. They are self-righteous. A Pharisee is separate from sinners. But this woman, she is a sinner known around town, which means she's a prostitute. That's another way that the author is saying, yeah, she, that's what she does for a living. This woman lives in the city, and she knows what Pharisees are like. There was a, a professor that I actually had in college or in seminary a few years ago, and he was a professor of evangelism. I'm not going to say his name. Uh, if I said it, some of y'all would know his name. But his, part of his class was uh, there physically and also for us who were learning virtually. Uh, our responsibility was to share the gospel with at least one person a week. And so some of those in his class went downtown in the city that he was in, and they began sharing the gospel with ladies of this sort. And when they began, one of the ladies said, okay, well, wh where are you from? Like, I've heard this spill before. And they said, oh, we go to this seminary right down the road. This lady looks back at one of those students in this guy's class and says, oh, I know that professor. He's one of my clients. Yeah. So this woman understood what the Pharisees were like. Now, it came out, that man who had built this great reputation, who had written books that we've carried in our bookstore, written books that my life group has gone through, that guy is now working on cars in southern Louisiana. All because he was not true to what he believed. We see here this woman, she comes in, she's like, I know what Pharisees are like. I know how they judge me. But she comes in with brokenness. She comes in, not with morality, but with hope that she can be forgiven. The fact that this woman stepped into this dinner party with Jesus Christ, with these Pharisees, with the Savior of the world, shows that she had great courage. So notice the, the contrast here already between the Pharisee and this woman. Look at verse number 38. And sitting behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Simon here, this Pharisee, this good man, had demeaned Jesus because it was proper when you walked into someone's home to wash their feet. That was an act of service, but he hadn't done that. He had disgraced Jesus. Nobody had washed his feet. Now, the woman lets her hair down. Here's what one commentator said. He said, it was a sign of passion. It was passionate, but it wasn't erotic. So this woman is doing what she's not supposed to be doing in the sight of a Pharisee man or inside of this rabbi. But it's okay because it's Jesus. Simon demeaned Jesus. This woman washed his feet. Verse 39. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he said to himself, this is important. He didn't say out loud. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Notice the categories that Simon puts the different characters in this story in. He puts himself in the holy category, and he puts Jesus and this woman of the night in the unholy category. He doesn't say, oh, well, maybe there's a reason for this. Boom, Jesus is a sinner just like her. 
Because, man, if, if Jesus were better, he'd be in my category. But notice, this man can't be a rabbi. If he were a prophet, verse 40, and Jesus answering said to him, now you would think for a minute, this man just said, this guy, this guy can't be a prophet. He says it to himself. This guy can't be a prophet. What does Jesus do? He reads his mind. What do prophets do? Stuff like that. <laughs> Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. We think about Jesus as, Simon, I have something to say to you. He probably didn't say it like that. He's, he's probably sitting there like, hey, dog, I got something to say to you. I know what's happening in here. Simon's like, oh, <laughs> you know, everything is tight. He says, and he answered, say it, teacher. Man, he's changing his tone real quick. Look at verse 41. Jesus responds with this, with this parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, which is about six months' wages, and the other 50, which is a couple of weeks' wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon, surprisingly, gets the answer right. One of the few times we see in Scripture where a Pharisee responds rightly. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Again, for once, a Pharisee judges rightly. Notice how the Lord responds to him. Then, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, so he's facing the woman, but he's talking to Simon. Jesus is still continuing to prove his point. He said, verse 44, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Notice the irony here that Christ presents, that this woman shows great love while Simon barely shows the bare minimum. We see this contrast just continuing all through here. But then here's the kicker, verse number 47. Therefore, here's the point. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. This woman, even more than the Pharisees, even more than the town, understands her sin. She understands her shame more than anyone else. She understands her pain, her brokenness, the debt that she owes. Yet this woman is ahead of the game. She's further along spiritually than Simon because she understands and is willing to admit her sickness and her brokenness. Here's the truth for us this morning, friends and family, is that we, if we expose ourselves to the healing and to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and him alone, as we bring ourselves and repent of those things that are a hindrance, as we repent of those things that are sin in the deep, dark crevices of our heart, the forgiveness of through Jesus Christ's blood covers all of those things. He covers them. But if we come to Jesus Christ and walk through life like this Pharisee, like Simon, and we keep those things hidden, guess what Jesus is saying? It's up to you to pay the debt on those. We can either expose those things to the forgiveness of Christ, or we can pay the debt ourselves. Martin Luther said, the great reformer who we've already referenced, Martin Luther said, we are hardwired with a wage mentality. We are hardwired with a wage mentality. In other words, we believe it is natural, our inclination, all of us, we are hardwired in this way. Good things happen to good people. 
bad things happen to bad people. What goes around comes around. Ah, that's just good karma. Mm, that's bad karma. But can I tell you this morning, that is not the economy of grace. The economy of grace says you are in desperate need of someone else to pay the penalty on your behalf. In this economy of, of a wage mentality, there is no hope because you will not, cannot be good enough. There is only death in that type of economy. Here are some diagnostic questions to, to, to see which type of economy you're in, whether the economy of grace or the economy of, of good works, of wages. Is your righteousness based on external compliance to rules? Or is your righteousness in the finished work and in the blood of Jesus Christ alone? Are you more aware of your good deeds or your deep need of forgiveness? When you are in the throes of sin, do you try to do better? Do you try to keep those things hidden? Or do you run and fall upon the mercy of Jesus? Because here's the scandal of grace. If you get nothing else, walk away with this. The scandal of the gospel is not that Jesus loves bad people too, but that he only loves bad people. The scandal of the gospel is not that, oh, well, he loves us, and wow, he also loves other people. But that Jesus only loves bad people. May we be more aware of our desperate need of forgiveness that we cannot find, that we cannot accomplish in and of ourselves. And it's only in that awareness that we will grow like this woman in our love for Jesus Christ, in our gratitude for Jesus Christ. Notice in verse number 48. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. In verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Literally, what this means is, hey, he's not saying, hey, your sins are forgiven for now, as long as you keep working hard. And we think, oh, man, Jesus paid the debt so that we can be in heaven forever. But in the meantime, I've got to do some really hard stuff. What this verb form means right here, he says, you are forgiven now, and you are going to remain forgiven forever. Look at verse 49 right there in the middle. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Notice Jesus does not say, in the name of God, you are forgiven. I have to say that. I can't say, hey, let me, let me forgive y'all. I'm not the mediator between y'all and God. That's why the Protestant Reformation started, BTW. <laughs> but Jesus here says, I am the mediator between God the Father and you, humanity. He says, your sins are forgiven because of me. And the only way that we can understand and appreciate the forgiveness that we have in God is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So even here, the cross looms in the distance. And for us this morning, we look back at the finished work of Christ and we can look at the cross and our sins can be forgiven this morning. That's where our hope rests. That's where our relationship with God the Father rests is in the finished work of Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life, who died perfectly in our place. And then he rose again, conquering the enemy that we could not defeat, could never defeat. And he reigns forever as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. God can only justly forgive because of the cross. So in the same way I cannot extend forgiveness to my wife 
to my kids or to one of y'all without paying some sort of price. That's at the heart of forgiveness. There must be a price paid. So the only way that Jesus can say here your sins are forgiven is because he's going to pay the penalty on her behalf. So friend, if you think you can earn God's favor, you cannot. If you think you're in the, if you're in the middle of sin and you cannot find a way out, if life is going well for you and you've not considered what Jesus Christ has done, for all of those, can I tell you this morning, run to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Fall on your face before Jesus. Worship Jesus. He alone is worthy. When was the last time you wept over your sin like this woman? You're like, oh, well, it's not, it's not in the Bible. I don't have to. Uh, I, think I'll just, uh, I think I'll just say, ah, oh, man, that's, that's really bad. Let me keep going. How many times do you have to say that? before you fall on your face and cry out to God for his forgiveness. So I would encourage you, consider your relationship with God because when we understand the finished work of Christ on the cross, it demands a response. It demands a response today, friends. And I would plead with you to run to him. Find forgiveness in him, in him alone. Whether you're the worst of sinners whether you've experienced suffering, whether you're in the throes of self-righteousness, whether you're at the end of your rope and you just can't, you don't know what the next step is. Wherever you are in that, run to Jesus, worship him. There are two types of people that we see here in this passage. We see Simon and we see this woman. But there are two types of people this morning, in this room, in this world, those who respond to repentance and worship Jesus Christ alone, and those who refuse to submit. That's it. So I would plead with you to fall upon his mercy yet again this morning.